trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep and detailed discussion about childhood sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Bent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode is Tim Verity. Tim is a former journalist and currently works in marketing. In this episode, we talk about Tim's journey into both of these fields. We talk about work-life balance and the traumatic experience he had with one former employer in the industry. We also discuss his experiences of being sexually abused as a child by an extended family member. We talk about the effect that had on him as a teenager, as an adult, and how he has now come to be a public advocate for awareness around victim survivors of child sexual abuse. This podcast was one of the darkest I've ever done. I'm pretty proud of myself that it didn't affect me as much as I thought it would do. And I had so many commonalities with Tim and his journey that are some of the most stigmatised and uncomfortable issues out there for men to discuss when it comes to their mental health. Sexual abuse is on a whole nother level of stigma to depression, to anxiety, even suicide. And me and Tim explore these scars in great detail in the hope that we can show other male CSA victim survivors that you are not alone. It is okay to have felt these things and in time and with support. It's not easy, but you can heal and you can get better. Tim is a very big legend for being this open with me and I hope you listeners have your eyes opened to this very grim, very real world for male CSA survivors and hopefully you can learn that life can get better for us and we can not just survive but thrive. So this is how my conversation with Tim Verity went. Tim Verity, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, mate. Thank you so much for coming all the way over to my neck of the woods in North East London, having a chat with me. How are you, bro? How are you getting on? Really good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Um, pleasure to be here. Excellent. And uh, journey wasn't too bad? Journey wasn't too bad, yeah. Just straight okay. on the tube. So Excellent. Yeah, and you had to take the dreaded central line, but it wasn't as hot as it normally is. Very yeah, not... Normally, you're getting a bit of radiator from the, uh, from the central line. Yeah, today. not summertime, thankfully. So <laughs> The pod we're about to do, mate, is not going to be an easy one, but I, I really hope it will be one that will help loads of vendors. It's st- certainly going to help me, I think. And it's a topic which I don't really see spoken about a lot, even in mainstream conversations in mental health. So without further ado, shall we just get started? Yeah, let's do it. You've worked in both journalism and marketing, Tim. So let's call this topic your professional journey. This is the easy part before we go into the deep stuff. Can you first of all tell me how this journey started, where your love for either of them began and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, so I guess I've always had a love of literature. I've always enjoyed journalism from quite a young age. I was reading quite a lot of alternative journalism, so new journalism of the 60s, people like Hunter S. Thompson, Truman Capote, 
and yeah, I'd, I'd always kind of toyed with the idea of being a, a writer of some kind. I, was, I did English literature for my first degree, did very well at English at school, so I'd always had it in my mind that I'd be a writer one day. I guess the route to journalism was because I had a few of what I, I call my lost years, basically. Okay. So after I graduated from my first degree in English, I went to Brighton, uh, moved in with some friends and spent a lot of time partying, didn't have a lot of direction. And so I came back to that idea of, well, what shall I do with my career? And there was a choice there, really. I was either going to do journalism or documentary filmmaking. Mm. I wanted to tell stories in some way because of my love of literature, I guess. And I thought naively, maybe I can make some money from journalism. That <laughs> a didn't... lot of people always think that at the start, don't they? I mean, they told me on my course, if you're in this to make money, you're in the wrong job. And boy, were they <laughs> Much right. Much like <laughs> Yeah, boy, were they right. But it, it at least gave me some direction for my life and something to sort of aim towards. Unfortunately, the publication I worked for, which I won't name for legal reasons, it wasn't a very nice place to work. The boss was a complete tyrant, and it was quite triggering for me, actually. It was it was during the period that I was going through the court case, which we'll come on to mm. later, I'm sure. But I was going into morning meetings with the senior team. I was an editor at this point, and being called four-letter words, you know, in front of the whole senior staff. The, the culture there was quite sort of militaristic. I'm sure some people will have assumptions based on that description of um, what the, the publication is. It wasn't like is. a light-hearted banter source but wearing either. It, it was fully it was, yeah, full on. Yeah, right, C okay. words and yeah. yeah, effing this and effing that. So yeah, didn't really enjoy that and decided to take a career sort of sidestep, luckily with the help of my partner who is in events marketing. I, I saw myself as a writer, but I saw myself as a, a retailer of facts. So I didn't see myself as a creative person in any way, but she kind of nurtured that creative side of me. And I began to see myself as a storyteller, as I had done before with the documentary idea. You know, it, it, it wasn't always necessary that I was going to be a journalist, but I wanted to tell stories. Science and technology is where I specialise, and I'm now working for big tech firms telling their stories basically to their customers. I want to go back to that toxicity if we can, mate, because you said you had one particular colleague who was incredibly harmful for your mental health. I'm assuming it was an editor of some kind above you, but at its worst, you said you would you would dread even getting up in the morning or getting out of bed. Can you just tell me about what your mental health state was like at that point? Yeah, I mean, it was the worst it had been for a long, long time. My mental health problems or challenges, I guess, first developed in my teen years, which again, I'm sure we'll, we'll come back mm. to. But during this period, it was during the court case, I was reliving a lot of the trauma that I hadn't dealt with face on for a long time. And it was, it was depression, anxiety, particularly anxiety, really, the stress of the job. I was working 12-hour days without a break. You know, I'd stop for lunch at four o'clock. That would be my first bit of food for the day. And on top of that, I'm dealing with, you know, there was one particular colleague, but there were many, you know, at the organisation who were similar. They were cut from the same cloth. And it was led from the top. It was, you know, the head honcho was leading by that example and everyone else kind of followed it so you know there were periods where I was sneaking off to the toilet to have a cry not being able to be at my desk not being able to perform putting a lot of pressure on myself but also having that pressure put on me and and the word you use there toxic is is really the the apt word it was mm. it was a toxic stressful environment how pervasive do you think it is in journalism I think journalism in general I knew that going into it that it was a cut and thrust world that it's high stakes a lot of pressure cut and throat as well <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> and I think there's varying degrees I think all journalism involves deadlines so there's going to be the pressure of you know getting the material out there and I know that Fleet Street has a reputation for specific certain specific publications having a really toxic environment I think that's probably changing but where I was it definitely wasn't it was still entrenched and it was almost like they were trying to one-up on you know you hear these rumors of how bad editors can be and mm. that, that there were particular editors that were trying to be 
you know, even sort worse. Sort of like parodies of themselves almost. Almost, yeah. yeah. I mean, you imagine writing like a Amanda Iannucci kind of sitcom about working in a newspaper and, you know, Mal- Malcolm Tucker kind of mm. characters. It's, it's exactly that kind of thing. I want to talk about a little bit, if we can, about positives, because there were a couple positives. And, and you said you had worked your way up and became a science and technology journalist despite not having a science degree which is a pretty good achievement actually because most of the jobs I was applying for when I was kind of interning back in the day it was always like you apply for a science firm and it's like essential science degree and it's like well if I did a science degree I wouldn't be working in, I wouldn't be going into science comms but you said that became or came from I should say a fascination with the universe can you tell me a bit about that and how it sort of relates to your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a young age, I was really curious about a lot of things. My mind works in a really kind of strange way. I can soak up random facts and bits of information that are totally useless in everyday life, but I can't remember what I did last Tuesday. So, you know, my memory, <laughs> works, in, I, to be fair. My memory works in a strange way. And I was just a bit of a sponge growing up and I had this fascination for sort of life, the universe and everything. And yeah, science particularly, science and technology was something I was really fascinated in. You're right, a lot of jobs that are scientific writing jobs, you do need that communications, science communicator kind of element as well. But I think my position as kind of an outsider, as a journalist, you're never the expert on the topic. It's your job to speak to the experts, get their information from them, understand the story through their eyes and tell their story for them. So you don't need to necessarily know all the ins and outs. It's your job to probe them to to get the information you need. So coming from a position of a a lay person but an enthusiast actually gave me a bit of an advantage because it meant I could ask for our readership which is a mid-market kind of tabloid readership it wasn't you know anyone who's (laughs) trained in science themselves it let me ask the questions that they would want to be answered so it worked in my favor and that's opened doors for me to write for science and tech kind of companies beyond journalism. How did it feel when you left that environment and came to one which was positive was it almost a, a new culture shock in itself? Yeah, absolutely. It was a complete shock. I remember sending an email around the office of the mental health charity that I went to work for straight afterwards, just saying how lovely it was, how appreciated I felt, how welcome everyone had made me feel. And I think a few of them were taken aback. They were like, why is this guy so enthusiastic about <laughs> what you know? what's just a normal w- working office? But it was such a culture shock to me that it was a huge relief. But it also meant that I stopped and started processing some of the stuff I'd been through. So my mental health actually continued to deteriorate whilst Mm. I was there because previously I've just been on flight or fight response. I'd just been, you know, on the edge of panic. It's a common thing, isn't it? It's like when people say, and I have this experience as well, like when you get, it's only when you get to a good place that you start addressing all the bad things that happened previously. (laughs) Exactly that. Yeah. Your body, I think, and your mind kind of realize, right, I've now got a chance to stand down. And then that's when all the stuff that's underneath starts bubbling up to the surface. So that was very much my experience. But over the last few years, that stuff's come to the surface and I've processed it and worked on it. And yeah, things were a lot, lot better now. And the company I work for now, I work for a marketing agency. They're so supportive of my mental health. I work as the mental health champion in the workplace. Mm. So I'm kind of helping other people with their well-being. And that really gives me we've talked about this briefly when we've chatted that, you know, giving back is something that's really important. It, It is a key component of my well-being. What has it taught you about yourself then, journalism and marketing? And I guess the good times and the bad times. So I guess it's taught me that I'm a lot more resilient than I give myself credit for. I can take a lot more than I give myself credit for. It's taught me to give myself a bit of a break and not be so hard on myself when I am struggling because looking back, anyone would have struggled in the situation I was in, but particularly with the challenges I was facing at the time. So 
I've learned to kind of give myself a bit of a break and not go so hard on myself. And and, and that's something that people have said to me over the years. You hold yourself to a, a really high standard, particularly in the quality of my work and what I produce. I take a lot of pride in what I do. So I guess there's an element of learning that sometimes it's okay for things to just be enough. You mm. know, it doesn't have to be perfect. You're not superhuman. There's only so much you can do. I think that the journey from journalism to marketing has made me reassess who I am as a person in terms of my creative output I see myself much more as a creative thinker now I think outside the box I hate this cliche but I think outside (laughs) the box a lot more and I've I've, I've been learning how to approach problems in a different way and it's just been it's just been a really interesting journey to go from that really narrow definition of who you are as a person to something much much wider meditation's been a big part of that for me as well that's been a big part of my journey to kind of getting in touch with my sort of true self. I know hindsight's a wonderful thing, but if you hadn't gone through those toxic work environments in journalism, do you think you'd still be there now? Yes. Yeah, I do. In some form. I would have liked to have got my teeth into science journalism a lot more. I could have moved on to other publications, but through a combination of what I was going through and also the position I was put in, I was I was thrust into a kind of editorial editorship role that I wasn't ready for because the person above me left basically due to the same stress as I was experiencing so I kind of had a battlefield commission almost and it just meant that my day job went from writing stories to editing other people's and whilst that's useful in you know experience it wasn't what I wanted to do I had no experience doing it and I was you know I was drowning basically Mm. so that put me off journalism not necessarily for life I mean I'd like to do other journalism about this stuff that I'm talking to you about today that's the sort of area that I'll continue writing about but as a professional jobbing journalist I think my days are are kind of over. On a day-to-day basis excluding toxicity what one do you enjoy more then or what one did you enjoy more? Marketing or journalism? Marketing 100% like I mean I'm sure if I was at a big corporate agency I'd have a different Mm. opinion on that but because I'm a, a bespoke kind of small startup almost meant i mean it's not a startup it started as a startup but it's it's a smaller organization it's much more of a collaborative communal almost like family feel which i know again sounds cheesy but you genuinely feel like the people there have your back they value your opinion they include you they ask you for your point of view on things that aren't necessarily within your wheelhouse and it's being able to spread your wings creatively is a really freeing thing but also feeling like the people around you genuinely care about you and care about your well-being that's like night and day for me we've talked all about tim the journalist the marketeer i want to talk about your own journey now tim this is going to be the really deep part of this podcast so i ask all my special guests this question first tell me about early life childhood teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Tim we meet here? To be honest with you, not really, not early on. If, if we're talking early on in my childhood, I had quite a privileged upbringing in a lot of ways. I grew up in the countryside, went to a good school, middle-class parents. My mum's a nurse, my dad's a doctor. So a lot of my early memories are having ducks on the pond in our garden, You know, going to countryside walks and... Yeah, just you know, going to the park and having a good time. The only thing I kind of look back on now and realise, whether it's mental health or kind of neurodivergence, I've, I've been recently diagnosed with ADHD, mm. and that came as a shock to apparently no one apart from me. <laughs> um, 
And looking back at my childhood now, I see it, I understand it. There was there was one occasion where my auntie put me in a plastic box and sat on it with the lid on as a joke, but because I was it's being... like a Simpsons episode with that with Bart, isn't he? And he's doing he's got the cu- he's got the cup. <laughs> exactly. I was being such a little terror that I, I you know, I used to run around like with a lot of energy and was very unruly and got in trouble at school all the mm. time for not being able to focus and all that kind of stuff, which you now look back on and you go, Oh yeah, that's classic ADHD. But in boys, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah, sure. girls yeah. I know present differently yeah. and, and that's why it's harder for them to be diagnosed but yeah so that's the only thing I'd, I'd, I'd look back at and think those were signs of something that I'd later discover to be a label of some kind but generally speaking no up until the time of the abuse which we'll come to I was yeah a happy-go-lucky little lad you know as I say privileged life my parents had their their issues as all parents do our families had its issues as all families do but I don't remember anything untoward or that I'd label le- mental health the bulk of that trauma, like you say, comes from the sexual abuse, Tim, which happened to you when you were between six to eight years old. And this is what rocked your life. It changed your life. It shaped your life in so many ways. So if you could just tell me how the abuse started, the events surrounding it, and then how it affected your mental health. Sure. As you're probably aware, for survivors of childhood sexual abuse, memories can be a very tricky thing. Timelines can be a very tricky thing. I kind of have to be quite vague about that. I know the abuse started around the age of six. It was a male relative that was, I think it was my mum's second cousin's adopted son, something like that. So an extended family member, not an immediate member of the family. But we did spend a lot of time with that family. We would go to their house on Sundays to have a roast And I would go up to the bedroom to play with this guy who was, I think, in his mid to late 20s at the time. Quite a big guy, heavy set, mustachioed. Like, he he was a man and I was, you know, a six-year-old kid. I don't think the abuse happened immediately. I think there was a process of grooming that happened with a process of kind of reward and threats. I know he would make me say naughty things about my parents or swear words or something to get myself into his you know he had something on me so he was encouraging me to do naughty things that he could then say well I'll tell your parents if you don't perform these acts on me and he would reward me with these sugar mice which are sweets that his mum used to make so that was the kind of enticement so that's the reward if you do what I want the carrot and stick sort of thing carrot and stick exactly yeah Yeah, that's exactly it carrot and sticks I've never I've never looked at it that way but you're absolutely right yeah it's a carrot and stick approach my recollection is that this built from those sort of naughty acts of disobedience for my parents into acts of sexual abuse that you know I would perform on him and that he would perform on me. Given that he was a a distant relative did that make it even harder for you to feel like you could tell someone if it happened compared to if it was a teacher and obviously those people would still be hard to kind of sort of speak out but because it was actually in your family. I think... It's a difficult one to compare because it's a hypothetical. Sure. I know that I was very, very scared of him. So I think the fear of what he would do, I, I thought I'd be the one in trouble. That's what offenders do. But they make it so that the victim themselves feel like they're the criminal. And so therefore you feel like you've done something wrong. You're the bad person. You're the bad yeah. person. And therefore, if he tells them, I'm the one in trouble. So there was never a question of me telling anyone. Mm. I knew that. I couldn't tell anyone because I'd be the one in trouble. So 
I think it's whatever the person who, whoever the abuser is, I think they've always got a position of authority over you in some way. Now, that might just be the fact that they're an adult and you're a child. It might be as simple as that. It could be that they're a family member. It could be that they're in a, an official capacity of, of authority. But in some way, they, the power dynamic's always in their favour, obviously, because you're a child, they're an adult. So I think what kept me from speaking out was 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 that fear. Having said that, I always knew that these acts of abuse had happened, but I didn't know they were abuse mm. until much, much later on. I perhaps thought they were a normal part of growing up that everyone experiences because I had no frame of reference. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't aware of terms like sexual assault or child abuse or... I mean, you, you, you knew about stranger danger. You knew about, yeah. you know, don't approach the guy in the van with the sweets because that's what the idea of paedophilia was at the time that you were being told about. It was don't approach strangers. Whereas actually most abuse happens with people that you know and, and are in your immediate circle. But again, you said the power of hindsight earlier. That's an example of that. It's, it's mm. fine to look back and say. When the abuse stopped on any particular day, how did you feel in that car journey home and then on the following Sundays, how did you feel in the car journey there? I know that I was very quiet in the car on the journeys home. I feel like I was in my own head quite a lot. I know that I was scared to go back. I know I, I came to dread those visits. Um, did you articulate that? I have a memory of articulating it, but no one else corroborates that. I think in my head I was screaming to, to, to you know, want to tell someone, but in my head it was you know something I couldn't verbalise. Mm. Let's fast forward to teenage years now. So, like me, it was a very repressed memory for you, but you were very much aware of it, but not its impact as you came to sort of realising your teenage years. So it was repressed, but not as repressed, I guess, in my experience. Can you just tell me about when your friend was sexually assaulted and that awakening it had in your mind and then how it, I guess, the memories of the abuse began to become more unlocked? Yeah, I guess I think repressed is, is slightly the wrong word for me at that time. I think after this revelation we're about to discuss, it, repression is definitely the word. I had memories of the abuse and I relived the memories of abuse over the years. I would dream about it. It came up in my memories, but it wasn't a terrifying thing necessarily. It was just a strange, weird dream that I had that I didn't really understand the significance of until uh, a friend was sexually assaulted or raped as a teenager and that event, I mean, I, I was present in the aftermath of that event and to see how physically and emotionally battered they were by it, to see their response to it was very traumatising and suddenly something in my head clicked and I understood that what I'd been through as a child was non-consensual, was sexual assault, was, was in the same ballpark as, as this. Um, Did it feel like Pandora's box was sort of opening? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 overnight, I went from being this kind of... I mean, that, that's a slightly simple way to look at it. There had been signs of depression creeping in. There had been a dis-ease with the world. I was not at ease with the world. Something was going on over a course of... Probably from, from about 14 till about 15, things had started deteriorating, certainly. But after that particular event, yeah, as you say, Pandora's box really opened. The dreams that I'd previously had turned to nightmares. I was reliving them every night in really horrific detail. And then with the context of understanding this is child abuse, it was just terrifying. I, I didn't want to go to sleep at night. That meant I was tired all day. And obviously for mental health, just being exhausted from sleep, let alone anything else, is going to be you know, terrible for you. On top of that, I was starting to drink heavily to try and numb myself to the thoughts and the feelings that I was having that I couldn't handle. And yeah, things really deteriorated rapidly at that point. 
when you were having those nightmares, Tim, one thing I found with fellow victim survivors of child sexual abuse is that sometimes you're placed into different psychological states within those nightmares. So, for example, sometimes I would have them and I'd be back in school, I'd be being bullied as like a 14-year-old, but I'd have the mind I have now so I can fight back and win or something to that effect. Sometimes I'd go back and I'd be within that 14-year-old me and I couldn't fight back and I'd be being victimised again. And then sometimes I may be sort of 22, 23-year-old me so I can fight back but maybe not as well. Is that something you've experienced as well? I don't think so because the dreams, they were always... Obviously, I was six to eight when it happened. Mm. So I was always a child. I don't feel like... I ever had the strength that I had as a teen. I, mean, I didn't have any strength as a teenager. That's the mm. problem. Like my my world was falling apart. If my mind was a mirror, it had smashed, and the fragments were just falling off. So things were just disintegrating fast, falling apart. I was having these dreams, and yeah, drinking during the day to escape them. As I say, over the years they started to fade because I think I'd gone to such lengths to repress. As you said earlier, that's when the repression happened for me. I started pushing everything down and kind of not dealing with it. And that was making things worse for my, my mental health. Eventually, I spoke to a counsellor who advised me to start speaking out about this stuff, which is the best advice I've ever had. And I've continued to speak out about it from this day, from that day, I should say. But the, the response I had from people around me at the time, you know, being 15, you know, kids at school couldn't handle this information. The teachers, no. I t- the teachers were finding out what was being said. They treated it as a disciplinary matter. I was the one in trouble. I was told off for, you know, sharing this information. It was inappropriate. Um, so your nightmares about you being blamed was coming true, essentially. Essentially, of their yeah, bad treatment. yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. It's every survivor's worst fear to be not believed, and it wasn't even a question of not being believed. It was being blamed. So yeah, I, I felt let down by all the adults around me. Because of this memory I had of telling my parents in the back of the car that never actually happened, I thought they knew as well. They couldn't understand my behaviour. I was getting verbally and sometimes physically aggressive towards them. And they eventually kicked me out of the house at the age of 16. Um, and I wound up homeless, living on the streets. And that's when my mental health and my substance use got really, really bad. How do you look back on that decision by your parents then? Are you glad they did that looking back? Were they right? Were they wrong? What are your sort of reflections on it? I think one of the big things for me in my journey to kind of healing is that I've let go of any illusion of control and come to everything from a point of empathy. And so to put myself into the shoes of my parents at that age when they had my sister in the house that they had to protect from me being you know crazy and verbal I was, I was never aggressive towards her but you know having me shouting and swearing and fighting with my parents not knowing what it was they thought I'd just gone off on the rails on drugs were I to be a father or to a daughter in that situation would I have taken the same decision maybe maybe not I can't say unless I was in their shoes but we have worked hard to build back the bridges between us since that happened. And it all came from a place of misunderstanding. As, as soon as they understood what had happened to me as a child, they were then able to contextualise my behaviour, understand that what I was going through was a response to that trauma, and we've worked to kind of build the bridges back between us. So I've got no ill feeling. That's not to say I didn't at the time. I was mm. really angry at the time because I felt like, well, my parents know I've been abused and they're not supporting me. The school knows I've been abused and they're not supporting me. My friends know they didn't know necessarily that I've been abused, but they knew that I was going through this really dark, depressing, horrible period in my life. And they all left me. So I was left alone in the world and just felt very isolated and vulnerable, really. Mm. Can you remember the conversation when they found out about the abuse? 
it wasn't actually a conversation. It was a, a letter I wrote to them about three years after I'd been kicked out of the house. I wrote them a letter saying, as you know, I was abused as a child. I can't understand why you reacted in the way you did when I was having my breakdown as a teenager. I just needed you to support me and you weren't there for me. What was going on? And they immediately, I included my phone number and they immediately got in contact with me and said, look, if we'd known this was happening at the time, things would have been so much different. It all makes sense now. We totally understand what you were going through. And that's really when we started the process of building back bridges. And I mean, that took, that was at the age of 19 and it took me until my late 20s, I'd say, to to really feel solidly back in contact with them and not necessarily to back to how things were because they never will be. But I think there, there was a mutual understanding between both sides that this would place a lot of hardship on all of us. And, and that's the thing about abuse. It doesn't just affect the person who's been abused. It affects everyone. Mm. It ripples out to everyone you have relationships with, whether that's familial relationships, romantic relationships, friendships. It, it affects every part of your life, really. How validating was that? I don't remember feeling validated per se at the time because I guess it's hard to when you're homeless and yeah I mean by that point addiction yeah by that point I wasn't homeless I'd I'd, I got back into school but I was I I was yeah I was having to work full-time because I couldn't claim benefits and attend school because I was a bit older I was 19 at the time so I was having to work full-time and try and get my education sorted so I was again on that fight or flight response the whole time. I was just I was just existing, and a lot of my life has felt like that. It was just coming, floating along, dealing with each challenge that arose, and just trying to firefight really from day to day. So it was good to be back in contact with them and to yeah to have that validation. I guess is now important to me as an adult, but at the time it was really just like okay, well I'm glad that's now out in the open, but I've got bigger fish to fry here. Mm. Part of that addiction involved alcohol and it also involved drugs, specifically ketamine, which you are comfortable to talk about here, Tim. What did the ketamine do for you? Was it a numbing? Was it a way to escape the pain? Was it a way to escape the real world? What did it do for you in regards to self-harm, but in your mind, maybe it was some form of self-care? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I'll start with the alcohol first because they're two substances that I use for the same end goal but they don't actually have that so Mm. i'll I'll explain slightly so with alcohol i was trying to escape i was trying to get out of my head and so when i was drinking it wasn't recreational drinking it was i want to drink to oblivion i want to feel and think nothing anymore whereas with ketamine i could think and feel and be in touch with the painful emotions thoughts feelings sensations but without the attendant attachment Mm. which is what i found through meditation ironically i found a healthy way to do that now i can sit and observe so it's basically sitting and being the the watcher the one who's watching the thoughts the feelings as they arise but not having that attachment to them so ketamine was a a form of self-medication but one that was ultimately really unhealthy in the long term but it, it gave me that dissociation it's a dissociative which is something that comes up time and time again with survivors of abuse I dissociated at the time of the abuse by concentrating on a TV that was in the room and I would just stare at the TV whilst these things were happening to me and my mind would be drifted off separate and away from my body and that's what ketamine does your mind separates from the body and those thoughts can be there you can sit and be with them but they don't trouble you they don't upset you so it was it was actually a way of processing the trauma because I, I didn't really have any therapy I didn't have access to therapy I was doing a lot of the healing off my own back so 
It was an attempt at self-medication. It was an attempt at giving me a tool to get through everyday life. But it was a really bad choice, mm. you know, in the long run. The addiction was mirrored with a lot of aggressive behaviour. And you said at one point you would go out and start fights with people just to get beaten up yourself. Can you just explain that mindset? Was it to feel something? Was it to take anger out on people what was your mindset like yeah I think it was a little bit of all of the above that was much more so with the alcohol with ketamine I was you know you're couch locked you're you're not you're not going anywhere um but with the alcohol it was yeah there was a lot of anger so it was a way of getting my anger out there was a lot of self-loathing and self-hatred and deserving to be punished so I was looking to be hit because I felt like I needed to be punished again going back to that kind of idea of the victim being to blame you internalize that you you turn all of that kind of pressure on yourself and yeah I think it was also just to feel something because I was so numb from the drinking but also from the length of time I've been dealing with these thoughts it gets to the point where <sighs> feeling is just so overwhelming you honestly feel like you're not going to survive the feelings they're so strong that's why you know suicidal ideation, all that kind of stuff starts to pop into your head as a, as a route of escape. But alcohol was my more easily accessible and less permanent way of, of achieving that. So I would just I would just drink to excess to being out of my mind. And and you know sometimes I was starting fights because I believed in what I was fighting about. So I witnessed you know homophobic and racist abuse from you know, and even just, you know fat shame and stuff towards my friends. And so I felt it was my place to step in and defend them and say sort of thing yeah Yeah. and say that's not that's not on i'm not not letting you say that but it was also with the knowledge that this could end up with me getting hiding and part of me wanted that let's talk about relationships now because sexual abuse can control the lives of male csas or child sexual abuse victim survivors in so many ways and as we both know it's incredibly hard for us as men to address it to stop it controlling us and to heal you know, I'm still working on it now. You were diagnosed with complex PTSD after the abuse. So I want to talk about some of the scars that it left you, particularly around attachment style within relationships. Now, for the listeners who don't know what attachment style is, everyone has an attachment style and it relates to how we interact with our relationships. So there's generally classified as four forms. So there's secure, anxious, avoidant and disorganized. So what was your style then? What is it now and how did the abuse affect it? It's a hard one to answer because I've not done some of the therapeutic work that you've done. <laughs> I'm still waiting for that. So maybe I'll tell you how my relationships were and you can tell me kind of where they fit. <laughs> but I think there was a lot of neediness. There was a lot of needing the other person to fix me, needing the other person to pick up the pieces and to be there for me. And a validation to, angle there as well, I guess. Validation, yeah. but also testing them, like pushing the boundaries and seeing what I could get away with. Like how much can I do before because i think abandonment issues perhaps there you know Mm. like everyone's left me everyone abandoned me when i was a teenager i couldn't rely on anyone you're going to do the same eventually so i'm going to engineer that situation to make it happen self-sabotage common isn't it um yeah yeah, so there was a lot of that there's a lot of pushing there was a lot of and i'll I'll be honest with you the first relationship i the first like proper long-term relationship i had one of the most powerful kind of relationships i've had it was that puppy love thing you know Mm. first cut is the deepest but i was emotionally abusive towards that person completely and I've, I've held my hands up to that 
and you know apologized and we've made our kind of peace and are are friends again now but yeah I just wasn't a good person to be around because you know I was drinking and being a bit of a nightmare really to be honest with you and I love this person dearly really did and to see myself now and the stuff that I was doing then you know it was such a source of shame for me when I was when Mm. I was when I was a bit older because I look back and realize fucking I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just I'll leave that in. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll say it again. I look back and I thought, fucking hell, you were a, not a nice person to be around. And when that relationship ended, I started to do a lot of work on myself. That's really when I started to heal myself and to look at ways of dealing more effectively with the thoughts and feelings I was having problems with. And that's not to say I suddenly changed overnight. I think that's that's kind of when I started to get into the ketamine with the end of that relationship and that kind of grew over the years but I was also trying to get help at the same Mm. time I did start going to drug therapy clinics and starting to try access services that could help me and starting to look myself in the mirror a bit more and say you know who do you want to be it's not this guy yeah there's a trope that is trotted out a lot which is abused people abuse now I used to be very much against this phrase because I thought it was not attacking me, but I thought it was sort of a, a harmful to people who were abused. But you've alluded to there that it is true in some cases. So how do abused people heal and counteract the hypervigilance, which I do live with a lot because of this abuse and the fear of becoming an abuser myself? How do we make peace with ourselves as well as help others make peace with themselves? Yeah, that's a really important question for me because that relationship I was talking about, one of the factors, one of the many factors that led to its downfall was that she wanted kids and I thought I would become an abuser of of the sexual variety. So when we're talking about abuse, I want to be very specific in Mm. our terminology here. I had that idea of of abusers become, sorry, people who are abused become abusers. And in that instance, I was thinking of sexual abuse and I thought like some kind of vampiric infection, the fact that I'd been, you know, abused would ultimately lead me to be an abuser now i've held my hand up to being emotionally abusive but that's a different kind of abuse and i think the idea that sex abuse survivors automatically become sex offenders is complete nonsense i mean i know that looking back now i know the evidence shows that it's nonsense i believe they can do i mean it doesn't mean they will do but i believe it can happen ultimately i think that the side effects of abuse the kind of knock-on effects of abuse can express themselves in various ways for various people you know there are a lot of commonalities when i talk to fellow survivors but there are also a lot of differences and i think the key thing for me is being able to face the abuse if you can turn it rather than run away because that's your natural inclination it's human nature you're going to want to run from it because it's so traumatic but if you can turn around and face it that's the transformational moment that's when you ensure you're not going to become an abuser because rather than running away from it and letting it control you you run towards it and take back control now you might have to start walking towards it you know it takes a while to get that pace up to actually be able to take it all head on but I'm honestly of the opinion like I love myself now I'm I'm really happy with who I am as a person and and that's a really powerful thing for me to say because I don't say that lightly I hated myself for the majority of my life and it's taken me a long long time to learn to love myself and to make peace with myself but I believe it's that journey that turns things around that stops you from being an abuser and there's actually a lot of positives that can come from abuse as you know you're doing it yourself 
being a, a platform, being a representative, giving back in some way and turning something so miserable into something so powerful. You know, I get people coming up to me, not coming up to me, but, you know, <laughs> approaching me on social media, emails via my website and telling me how much of an impact reading my stories made for them because they didn't ever have anyone talking about this stuff when they were growing up. That's how I felt. I saw a meme on Instagram the other day of something saying like, you need to be the person you needed when you were that age. And I really, really believe that because there was no one like me mm. talking when I was a young person. So, how proud are you of yourself, are you? At my best, I'm really proud of myself. Look, The court case was a big part of that. That was a big turning point for me to be able to... Tell the listeners about that. So what you can anyway. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so I, I w- approached the police in 2013 to tell them about what had happened to me as a child. That was partly as a result of my nephew being born and a kind of self-protective mechanism kicking in and realising that, you know, there's an, another generation of, of kids out there that could potentially be targeted by this guy. I mean, there's been many generations since I was abused, but that was the turning point that made me feel now is the time to do something about this. I didn't always get on with the police. I'd had bad experiences in my teenage years for for kind of you know reasons you can probably imagine. But actually, when I approached the police, they believed me. They handled it really well. It was a long, drawn-out process in which I had to give evidence that made me focus on the abuse and relive it in a way that I hadn't done since I was a teenager, really. I've told and retold my story over the years, but that was almost like a defensive mechanism. It was a way of mythologizing my story and kind of making it this this story that happened to this character Tim rather than the attachment to the, the feelings but that I had to go back through my memory and as we talked about repression you know I'd repressed a lot of stuff the timelines weren't clear had I spoken to someone when I was 16 I would have been able to give them a blow-by-blow account mm. of every little thing that happened but because it was 10 15 years after the breakdown a lot of stuff had become cloudy but for me really the court case wasn't about getting the conviction if, if that happened that would be a a benefit but I didn't go in with that expectation because I know that a lot of people are let down by the system that it doesn't always work so really for me it was just to make sure that he was on the police radar and it was a chance for me to stand up and be heard and be proud of myself for doing that because you share your story with people over the years and they say, oh, it's so courageous. You're such, you know, so, so brave for doing this. And that didn't mirror my reflection of myself at all. I, I felt like a coward. I felt shame, guilt, all the things that, you know, survivors feel. Does it reflect it now? No, because of that court case. But because of getting up there in front of a, a jury and a judge and telling my story, being heard and believed. I mean, I was literally looking at him like in I'm looking dock, at you yeah, now yeah, yeah. at the back yeah. of the dock looking him in the eyes and giving my evidence when I could you know I had to look away at times because it was it was really emotionally you know traumatic but the ultimate benefit of that was that this weight was lifted from my shoulders this story that I've been carrying around for all these years was just suddenly briefly in that moment lifted from my shoulders and I felt free for yeah really the first time to quote Rage Against Machine did you take the power back I took the power back (laughs) definitely took the power back and that's a really apt yeah an apt way of putting it and as I keep mentioning I keep banging on about meditation but meditation was a big tool for me meditation was my kind of self-therapy but the court case was kind of the the moment that one chapter in my life closed and the next one mo- you know moving on from the abuse. So you got closure. I'm in that second chapter now. I'm I'm no longer dealing with the abuse. I'm now moving on from it and learning how to live 
my life and meditation is the tool that's allowing me to do that but the court case was the moment at which that chapter closed mm. i want to talk about sex and relationships and, and sexuality and stigma now tim um, one scar that i had to work through with therapy was a sort of fight or flight response before sex or before intimacy which i kind of later came to realize it was my mind not feeling safe and not feeling in an environment where I could be safe and vulnerable with that person because of the abuse, which is now thankfully I've worked through. But our relationship with sexuality as a, as a male CSA is another very complex and stigmatized one. And one reason for this, which is again what I had to kind of experience because my sexual assault was involuntary arousal, which we spoke about uh, off air. Can you explain to listeners what that is, if it affected you and why it affects male CSA? Obviously it affects females as well but male CSAs when it comes to our biology so horrifically when it comes to our mental health yeah I mean as you say um, I think it happens to, to a lot of survivors male or female but yeah I'll only speak about my experience because I'm a man but yes involuntary arousal was, was certainly a thing that happened you know the body responds to stimulation and that doesn't mean that your mind is making it happen it means it's a bodily sensation that's happening and it's reacting, and, and it's reacting to it, to, to, it. to learn yeah which, yeah, I mean, I that's only something I've really recently, relatively recently started talking to people about because I didn't know it was a thing. And it actually was a female survivor that told me about her experiences with it. And that made me realise, oh, right, OK, that, that that's a thing that happens. And you don't, people don't talk about this. because no. I, I mean, it's embarrassing as hell, you know, and it's, it's, it's shameful. It's thing, it's taboo. It's, it's, for men, it's horrible. It's yeah. another yeah. source of shame, isn't it? You know, my body has betrayed me. I've certainly done a lot of questioning of my sexuality over the years. I have had male and female partners. We're quite lucky that the language around sexuality, gender, romance has really blossomed and become a lot more rich over the years so there are now terms to describe things that there just weren't when I was younger I now see myself as like hetero romantic romantic so that means I'm only romantically attracted to women but I do have sexual attractions to some men and that's something that I'm comfortable with and, and I, I don't like the label bisexual because I don't see it as a binary it's not like the person is who I'm romantically attracted to and that happens to be women mm -hmm. sexually I can be attracted to a variety of people and that's okay that's fine but it is something I really struggled with as a teenager you know what what am I am I mm. am I bisexual am I gay am I straight was that a direct result of the abuse or do you think if the <sighs> abuse hadn't happened you'd have just been sort of heterosexual and it would have been pretty straight to pardon it the pun <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a pretty difficult one to to know about because again hindsight I've got, yeah yeah, course, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's hindsight but it's also i've got no other way of knowing because yeah, that's sure. all i've ever known i've often asked that question myself so it's a, it's a totally valid question mm. to ask and partners have asked me do, mm. do you think you would have been had you not had a male-on-male -male experience of abuse that led to you know involuntary arousal it broke that taboo of being aroused by a man so maybe i experimented with that more as a result but I don't want to give the impression that, you know, being sexually assaulted can make you gay or make no. you bi or whatever, because that's just nonsense. Mm. But did it affect my outlook on sexuality? A hundred percent. It affected my outlook on heterosexual sexuality as much as, as with men. We were talking about how relationships are affected and yeah, letting, letting my first, not the long term girlfriend that I was talking about. I had, a, I had a girlfriend briefly before that at quite a young age, sort of 14, 15, 16, we were starting to experiment and... I wouldn't let her get close to me physically. And I think that was a part of the scarring that you were talking about. I, I kind of don't like, I'm not going to take the word away from you because it obviously means something to you. I don't like to think of myself as scarred because 
through again meditation sorry to hop back to it but i've come to this position of understanding that i'm not the scars there are scars there but i'm the one that's watching the scars i'm the one that can see the scars I like that yeah. so i'm not the scars i'm not the trauma i'm not the abuse that is part that's inside me but it's not who i am mm. and that's really what where i've come to an understanding where i can be free from the suffering because mm. i no longer attach to it it's not my suffering it's mm. suffering that happened to my ego to my thinking mind but there's a part of me that's beyond that that can witness it and observe it and be free from it but yes certainly sexuality and, and you know ideas of masculinity when i was growing up was very traditional of if you haven't been able to fight off the offender in some kind in some kind of way you've deserved it almost you know like you've let it happen and the therefore you, narrative yeah yeah, yeah. so you, again it's, you always internalize it i think as, yeah. as a survivor of these things the term that i heard on a podcast when we're talking about these questions mate is sort of like homosexual ocd or or internalized homophobia and this was something that i experienced when i was starting to address the sexual soul and i've now come to sort of resolve that thankfully through the therapy but i was very confused by it because i've never been homophobic as far as i'm aware <laughs> and i've got loads of gay male and gay female friends and i spoke to a, a, a gay mate of mine about this it was the first time i'd sort of expressed it because i was so scared of it i was like does this make me is this, are these, is this trying to make me feel gay or you know why am i having this anxiety over it and he said he literally just kind of very gently reassured me that like that's what it would do to you do you think that is one of the biggest stigmas or taboos in men when they are sexually abused i can imagine it is for a lot of men i don't feel like it was for me because it was just part of my confusing experience as a teenager everything wheelhouse. Yeah. Every, yeah. everything was confusing you know yeah. like I, not, the rug had been pulled from underneath me so there was no up there was no down i was just trying to figure my way through so I don't know enough about internalized homophobia to know whether that's what was going on at that time, but I didn't ever resent the fact that I had attractions towards men. I just questioned what it meant. I just questioned, what does that make me? What label do I fit under? Yeah. And actually, it was learning that I don't need to fit into a label that made me make peace with it because it's only society that's trying to categorize you in that way. And none of my friends ever had any issues with it after that you know i was always quite openly like i wouldn't say bisexual but i'd say you know i've had relationships with sexual relationships mm. with men and and I, I was living in brighton you know like mm. you know, I, I went it, to uni there yeah you know? i mean it's but it so it wasn't it wasn't a big i know the it, scene you know yeah you know the scene so it wasn't a big deal like i, I was hanging out with gay guys all the time yeah. um yeah and as you said i've you know, got, got a lot of gay male and female friends and so it, it wasn't ever something i resented so i don't feel like in fact I feel like it made me closer to my gay friends because it felt like I had something that I could relate to them about because I felt part of that community. I felt mm. part of the LGBT, whatever way I fit into mm. it, I'm still part of that umbrella. But I also understand being an outsider and kind of just because of who you are, you've got additional challenges that other people don't face. So I kind of felt some kinship towards mm, that. That connection there. Yeah, yeah, so it wasn't ever anything I felt kind of a phobia towards more of an empathy more of a like mm. where, do, where where do i fit in within this rainbow of you know mm. of, of identities you haven't done too much media work with mainstream publications tim do you think that is part of the stigma in itself that a lot of media outlets would rather cover inverted commas mainstream issues like depression or anxiety or maybe even grief to a certain extent rather than issues like this 
So this is something I thought about quite a bit from my experiences as a survivor, but also someone who's worked in the media. When I was going through the court case, it was around the time of Jimmy Savile and all the VIP um, abuse stuff. And I think the the media is more interested in sensationalist big stories. So paedophile rings in Rotherham and stuff like that yew tree basically yeah yeah. just anything that's got a salacious you know either a celebrity element or uh, it's it's the immigrants doing it or you know where there's a, a salacious kind of sensationalist angle they can take and that means that what I call acts of everyday abuse are the ones that are left behind and I've, I've often thought about a podcast or some kind of some, some kind, of, kind of collection of stories of, of everyday abuse because that's what I think guys like you and, and others are doing. They're, they're, they're helping to pro- provide a platform for everyday stories of abuse. And those are the ones that are the most common. These big VIP stories that happen from time to time, although vast in scale sometimes and, and really hard hitting. Like, I think it's great that the stuff in football came out, you know, the abuse in football scandal, I think is a really important story to have told. <laughs> Still going on. But that has made a space for men to be able to talk about this stuff in a way that, you know, I wasn't brought up as a footy fan I, I have come to football quite late in my life because my partner she's a, a Geordie fan um so I'm a Toon Toon uh, Black <laughs> Army but uh, yeah I, w- I was never really a laddie lad but to, to be able to see laddie lads who I always associate as being quite alphas yeah yeah alphas yeah. you know like talking about this stuff I think is really important but all men talking about it's really important but to, to come back to your point I think that yes there isn't a much of an appetite in the mainstream media to hear male stories uh, or, or stories of everyday survival just the grassroots you know, the, just yeah. the just the people that this happened to in everyday situations you know whether it's a family member or you know someone in a position of trust or, or authority like a school or a, in, unless it ends up being a, a ring of kids that have been abused at the school they won't they won't touch it you know and there's also even taboos within covering certain issues like for example a female perpetrator there's like less of a desire to cover that than there would be a male perpetrator absolutely and there's a complete double standard as well because you know i saw stories in my time as a journalist where it was a female teacher say that's groomed a pupil and in the comment section below the story they're trying to get through things like you know get in their son well done you're a man now you know all this kind of stuff and it's like hang on this is a this is an offender who has groomed an underage person and has abused them and has scarred them for the rest of their life. And yet we've got this double standard of when it's a female abuser, you know, getting their son, particularly if they're, you know, vaguely attractive, getting their son, you've done well. It's every boy's fantasy. And, you know, there is some truth in that. You know, when you think about it as a teenager, you do think, oh, wouldn't it be great to hook up with Mrs. What's all, all the boys I've, used to I've, look at the, they used to kind of talk about the, the fit. Uh, of course we all did but when you think about the reality of it that's not an appropriate relationship and there's a reason why that's not legal you know even if they're 16 they can't give consent to that because they're not that person is in a a position of trust and that's where abuse takes place it's where there's a position of trust that's being taken advantage of to to do what they're doing there's not a lot of open male csas out there tim me and you are two i've thankfully connected with a few in recent months which is great i'm hoping to have a few of those guys on soon but before that, I could basically count them all on one hand. However, with women, there's a lot more out there. And to varying degrees, you know, some talk about rape and some talk about sexual abuse of children and stuff like that. Were you aware of that lack of visibility before you came out? I certainly was. It, it certainly made me a lot more, uh, what's the right word, wary of doing it, even though I'd already talked about suicide and all this sort of stuff. And do you feel that responsibility now? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 100% something I was aware of and a big part of the drive towards me doing what I do. I've been talking about this stuff for... I think my first story was published just after the court case, so like 2017. But I've been talking to friends about it for a lot longer and I've had people come to me and confess, you know, their own... Confess is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Share mm. their stories with me in a, in a way that was powerful, in a way that was like, thank you for talking about this because it's meant that I can talk to you about my own situation and offer advice and so that made me realize talking over the years it made me realize there's so many more people out there than you'd expect that have been through if not the same something relatable but yeah totally aware of a lack of men talking about this stuff and that was a real driver towards me being so open and we were talking about my my upbringing and I had quite a bit of privilege I came from a relatively wealthy background you know I had a good education and I wanted to use my privilege as a way of being you know having a platform basically having the the ability to be able to I've got the the training as a you know someone who's been in the media I've got the education the you know some of the things in life that people don't get the opportunity to have so I felt that responsibility is the is the key word there I felt that responsibility to do something and I don't want to get grandiose because all I'm doing is telling my story like all I'm doing is sitting down having conversations with people it's not groundbreaking stuff it's 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 fairly I mean, it is mate to be fair <sighs> yeah okay i, I know I, you're i know you're not trying to dig yourself up too much but for where we are in the conversation it is i would say yeah i think it, it's breaking ground in the sense that it's great that more men are speaking out and that, that it's moving the conversation forward i will completely take that i wasn't trying to be faux humble there <laughs> but i'm also aware i don't want to get too egotistical yeah, about i know it. i, I don't want to get too grandiose because i'm just, I'm having, just trying to give you some credit um, yeah <laughs> thanks man but I, we're, we're just two guys having a chat over microphones you know yeah. um but yeah, but I just felt that responsibility to be able to do whatever I can in whatever small way. I'd love to do more. I'd love to do bigger things. I'd love to grow projects and, and get things off the ground. But I do have a day job. I don't do this full time. There's only so many hours in the day, you know. So, But I just do what I can. Before we reflect, I just want to talk about disclosure and the idea of disclosure when it comes to our stories, Tim. And being open about our journeys as men. I found in the in the dating world is quite hard for me. Uh, I've taken steps to protect myself and protect the other person if I'm dating them. So, for example, you know, I don't put my surname on my dating profiles anymore. You know, some people might say, well, that's a security thing that, you know, girls do, which I completely get. But for me, security it's a security thing for myself because I am Googleable. That's not really a word, but that is, that is, is now. the reality. Yeah, it is now, yeah. <laughs> so, for me, I do find the filters quite difficult i'm very conscious that i don't want to dump all of this on someone very early on but at the same time you know i don't want to keep it from them for too long because it's still a big part of my life how do you navigate that yeah it's a good question like full disclosure verity is not my surname my name is tim but verity is not my surname for professional reasons course, i've got i've yeah, got a writing yeah. career i don't want to be googleable mm. or when i first started doing this i didn't want to be googleable because i didn't want employers being able to you know yeah. read my history actually now i've started bringing those two worlds together so pro- people can probably find me out there under my real name quite easily and i'm not that worried about it <laughs> but that gave me some separation it gave me the ability to do my everyday work under my you know my, my surname and then use Tim Verity as as my side project but to your question of the dating kind of world and how do you navigate that I've always been really upfront 
and that scares people off quite a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I used it, to be like, and then I then I, I've sort of flitted between full and none, and then sort of a middle of way, and it's yeah, it's so hard, man, for me. It's it's maybe not a first date conversation, but it's something that's going to be coming up in the first three days because I don't want to get too far down the road and then know that you're going to freak out about it. And it's the same with friendships as well. I've, I find friendships, I don't care. <laughs> friendships, because like, it's so easy for me to be like, well, if you don't get it, cool, see you later. That's exactly yeah. my approach. So after that experience at my first school, well, not my first school, but the school that I had a, the falling out with all those people, they abandoned me completely. So going forward, it was a defense mechanism of like, this is my story. Can yes. you handle it? And if you fail the test, you're not worth my time. Mm. And I kind of apply the same approach to, to dating. Um, yeah, not there yet, mate, with that one. <laughs> Hopefully I am soon. I'm, I, I should now say that I'm like happily settled down and yeah. engaged to get, to get married. I've got a lovely fiancé who's very supportive and has been from the get-go. I can't remember what date it came up in conversation with her, but it was, it was very early on and she was completely non- nonplussed like mm. it didn't didn't affect her in any way but she's had her own difficulties in her life i think most people have had stuff they can relate to even if it's not we've all had trauma of some yeah. kind whatever scale that might be or you know trauma comes in a lot of forms but life is traumatic in its in its nature so and i'm a lot older now you know i'm almost 40 these days mm. so I'm, I'm 37 but pushing care 40. less yeah care, yeah, yeah care less and people are more mature as well like you know mm. you're dating uh, you know older people you know people around the same age as you so they've been through life they know what the score is um we're not teenagers anymore you're, you're what mid 27 yeah, yeah so yeah thinking back to that age it was it was still tricky it was still very tricky yeah i think for me it's maybe it comes back a little bit to control maybe because i don't want to tell it too early or lose control of the reaction or maybe it's a power thing but in a way of like i want to have the power to tell them in the right in the right time uh so hence why i don't maybe want people to find out too soon and also like i'm a very social person i don't want anyone to treat me differently but at the same time I don't want a conversation to be really, you know, nice and flirty and fun and then go really deep really quickly because most of my conversations when I'm out and about and I'm at parties and stuff and people find out about event, they end up going deep anyway because they ask about event and then I have to do sort of mental health first aid <laughs> impromptu, which is all I always enjoy doing. You know, it's always nice to support people, but I always don't want to make it always go too deep. Do you know what I mean? So I do know what you mean. Unfortunately, I have a tendency to go deep um, on everything. So <laughs> my my sort of like party chat tends to get because because of that like curiosity about the universe and curiosity about people. Like it's hard re- to do small talk now, isn't it? When yeah, you're in this sort of space. Yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm just fascinated by people as well. So you can put me in a room with anyone from like you know from any background any walk of life and i will find something in common with them that i want to talk about for fucking ages like Mm. i just want to just really drill down into the conversation and part of that's maybe the adhd but when my brain finds something interesting it wants to just go and go and go (laughs) and sometimes my missus has to kind of you know pull me away and say all right yeah let's let's, (laughs) not not necessarily that but like you've taken up a lot of their time let's circulate let's let's do the like work the room but the timing thing is interesting you're right there's never a right time to to sort of do it and I completely understand that it's not control in the negative sense it's it's ownership it's um it's owning your story and being able to control how and when it comes out is a really important thing so like for friends I mean I don't give a shit you know sometimes I can tell people quite quickly and some people and I always kind of pockmark it with like are you ready to hear this and then I'll tell them and then it will kind of go from there I always sort of try to make sure that I don't 
dump stuff on shoehorn it in yeah shoehorn <laughs> it in yeah or just kind of make people feel uncomfortable if they're not ready or yeah. emotionally intelligent enough to hear that do you know yeah, what I mean like, yeah yeah I don't want ever to make someone feel uncomfortable so De- definitely know your audience 100% uh, yeah 100% and read the room I'm always quite yes. keen at reading yeah. the room no absolutely I want to reflect now on your journey Tim so first question here how have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today and what have they taught you about yourself that's a big question I would start by saying that I wouldn't change anything because and a lot you know that might be a cliche to say and a lot of people might not understand that but I like who I am today and it's taken me a long time to get there and I think the lessons that I've learned along the way and the tools that I picked up have made me a much more resilient open person they've given me I'm going to quote Liam Neeson almost here, but a specific set of tools, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, wasn't expecting that on this podcast. Um, yeah, I've got a very specific set of tools that now help me navigate life. And that's not to say that I don't struggle. We all struggle. But I found freedom from suffering is available to me, which is something that I never thought I'd be able to say. I've found a place where I can sit and be with tr- the trauma and welcome it in and accept it as part of who I am and... When I say welcome it in, I really mean that. I really mean being able to look at the little boy inside myself who's hurt and say, thank you, you're welcome here. You're part of who I am and I'm, I'm glad for that. And that's making me a bit, a bit, <laughs> a bit emotional. But um, I wouldn't change a thing because for me, the meaning of life is, is almost how we respond to adversity, how we overcome the challenges that life throws our way. Life is difficult for everyone. We all have challenges, but... It's how we navigate them. It's how we deal with them. There's a couple of kind of maxims that I live my life by. One is being able to look myself in the mirror every day and like who I am. That's a really important thing for me, and it's taken me a long time to get there. The other is never judging a man until you've walked a mile in their shoes. I'm I'm always keen to be empathetic and to understand from someone else's perspective, try and put myself in their shoes. And I think that's something that's really lacking from the world these days. I think it's... The world's becoming even more fragmented and divided and black and white thinking, black and, white thinking and everything's shades of grey. And I think we have a lot more as people that draw us together and make us similar than the things that divide us. And I think that's a whole other podcast. We could go into the media's role in all of that, mm-hmm. you know, politicians' roles, divide and conquer, you know. It's a lot easier to keep us separate and, and fighting with each other than getting along, but... Mm actually you have these conversations you know and and survivors can be from all different walks of life from all different privileges backgrounds not privileges challenges adversities but when you sit down and chat with them you understand that we're all just humans and we all have responses to trauma and we all have emotions psychology that we understand about each other and that's really important to me and as a final question if you could go back then and talk to the six-year-old Tim who was being sexually abused or 16-year-old Tim who was kicked out of his home or a 25-year-old Tim who was struggling to deal with the scars of that abuse and trying to stop them becoming scars on him but rather scars that he can look at and deal with properly what would you say to him knowing what you do now I've thought about this a bit recently I was asked a similar question by someone and I'd never really never really thought about it that much because I was in survival mode for so long but yeah now I do have the luxury of being able to kind of look back and reflect and I guess I would just say to him 
things will get better. There's going to be some tough times ahead. There always will be tough times ahead, but you will learn how to not only survive them, but navigate them successfully, incorporate them into part of who you are and find a place of peace and tranquility within yourself that will allow you, if not freedom all the time, moments of freedom. You're not alone. There are other people out there like you. Talking about this stuff is so important. You know, a question that often comes up, you know, when I was a journalist, people would post questions on stories about historic abuse of, you know, why didn't you talk about it at the time? Don't work to anyone else's timeline. You know what's right for you. You're on your own journey. Follow your journey. Trust in yourself. Learn to love yourself. And things will improve. Things will get better. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Tim, on the podcast. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So, first of all, at time of recording, uh, Omicron is slightly starting to worry a few people. But how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I'd say it's pretty good. It's been better. I did have a bit of a... A blip over the summer, I think two years of lockdown catching up on me. I also took a holiday and stopped looking after myself so well. And I think uh, if you stop doing the things that look after you, things can really deteriorate quite rapidly. And that was quite scary. I didn't realise how quickly things could could turn around. But at the moment, they're good. They're really good. If you felt comfortable saying outside of ADHD or including it, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day to day life? Uh, So I've just recently been diagnosed with CPTSD and ADHD. The CPTSD didn't really come as a surprise. It's something I've been kind of pushing to get a diagnosis for. For the listeners as well, how does CPTSD and PTSD, which I live with diagnosed currently, affect people and how do they differ? So, I mean, I've just been diagnosed and I'm awaiting the treatment. But from my initial kind of understanding, the, the C, really the complex part, just refers to the period of time that's elapsed. It's the, so if you have PTSD, it's a trauma, you know, a response to an immediate trauma. When you've been through repeated traumas over time and that trauma has been reinforced by further traumas throughout your life that have resulted, it becomes ingrained in your personality. So it's a lot more difficult to treat. It's a lot more a part of who you are. So say the typical example of a soldier going off to war, having a PTSD experience, they can treat that when they get back. And it's not easy, but it's, you know, it's it's an easier prospect than someone who's an eight year old kid who went through significant trauma and relived that trauma again and again over the years. Mm. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical, but they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I guess it was probably around the age of 15 when I had that really traumatic breakdown experience that I realised, yeah, this is this is mental health stuff. My parents are both medical, so they kind of diagnosed me with d- depression initially. So that was the first time I really started to think about mental health mm. in that way. What age were you when you had the first conversation about your mental health with someone? And how did it go? Did it feel like a big burden had been lifted off your shoulders? Did it feel like something that was a massive relief? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normal to do? It felt strange, to be honest with you. I went to the family GP and discussed what was going on for me. And they said, yeah, you're depressed and we'll put you on medication. That medication, unfortunately, is no longer prescribed to under 18s because it causes violent behaviour and suicidal tendencies. Dear God. <laughs> something I experienced both of at the time. So that set me up almost for life, not 
wanting to rely on medication too much it gave me a bit of an aversity to to medication which is fair enough (laughs) yeah I mean that's not to say I I haven't had to go back to meds at times in my life but it was quite a scarring experience initially what triggers do you have that affect your mental health so for the listeners it could be a sound it could be a sensation it could be a film it could be uh, a particular place a location or have you not figured all of them out yet yeah, it's a difficult one for me because I never really saw myself as someone who was triggered until quite recently. I think having worked at that journalism job that I told you about, that's when triggers started to become more of an issue when the court case was going on and reliving that trauma again. I think triggers for me, a lot of it's hypervigilance, so mm. it's an overwhelming of the senses. So clacking on keyboards in an office environment could be something, you know, just the repetitive tapping because your body is on high alert for anything out of the ordinary or anything that grabs your attention any noises that like that can can set me off being in close proximity like on a tube train i can get quite claustrophobic and need my personal space i need like in bed when i sleep at night i'm 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 not great at sharing a bed with my partner it's a real shame to say but i can find that quite difficult because they want to touch me and cuddle me when i fall asleep and i want just to have my physical space to feel safe and secure so I don't know if they're triggers necessarily but mm. those are some ways that yeah this sort of manifests itself mm. you've mentioned medi- um, you've mentioned meditation I should say a lot on the podcast already so including med- meditation can't even say that word or not what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health and also what methods have you tried but haven't so I think there's this is going to sound really patronizing because it's the advice that you always get from medical professionals <laughs> but diet exercise you sleep. know look, looking for yeah. sleep looking after yourself all that stuff is very true like i'm not suggesting that if you're super depressed that that's going to cure your depression but i feel like you need a stable bedrock on which to build everything else so the basic tools for me are looking after yourself in that way so making sure you're getting enough sleep making sure you're eating right making sure you're exercising and I'm saying this at a time in my life where I'm not necessarily doing all those things so it's a work in progress believe me but on top of that yes meditation has been the biggest therapeutic tool I've had access to to date I have had talking therapy as well that's been really helpful I have had brief periods of therapy but I'm talking like six sessions here and there that's something that I'm hoping to access more in the future and I think will be really helpful tools that I've used that haven't been helpful I mean substances really but the the problem is they have been helpful in a way (laughs) they have served a purpose so I'm not of the like 12-step mentality and this isn't to slag off 12-step at all I know it works really well for a lot of people but I'm not of that mentality that I'm all or nothing I don't feel like I I can I can have a social drink now and enjoy two bottles of beer Mm. for the flavor and not go off on a bender that wasn't always the case but my relationship with substances shifts over time and you know like looking not into hopes anymore that's the difference it's knowing when something's recreational when something's abusive or pr- problematic and i think that's something everyone struggles with we live in a culture where alcohol's socially acceptable and i think we've all dealt with you know how am i drinking too much here blah 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 but you know there's also therapeutic potential in some of the the drugs Loads. that are out there and i'm really interested in hallucinogenic research i'm not Psilocybin, saying ayahuasca, yeah, yeah i'm not saying i'm taking that stuff myself i have done in the past and had some fairly bad times but um those retreats sound amazing that's yeah what i'm saying i'm I, not saying anything else in this podcast but i'm saying those retreats I, sound amazing there's something i'm certainly looking into the potential of because i think in the right set and setting with the right therapeutic environment 
and we're, we're talking therapeutic doses here not recreational yes. i'm not t- talking about going out and partying <laughs> this is a you know the closest i mean when i've read about it it's, it's it's it aligns with my values from meditation it's about expanding consciousness and expanding self-awareness and making peace with trauma and that's a really important thing for me so yeah so i would say don't ever rely on a substance to moderate your emotions your thoughts your feelings or sensations if you're using a substance to get through everyday life that's a problem but there are substances that can help you including medication you know they're tools what's the best book or as i put it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it could be mental health related it could be a self-help book for example or it could be completely non-mental health related yeah i mean i'm, I'm gonna say like most of my mental health support reading is in the form of meditation books it's it's learning more about meditation one of the most impactful in fact i'll, I'll give you two if that's all right two yep. of the most impactful books that i've read are instrumental by james rhodes james rhodes is a concert pianist that was also abused at school and he wrote this book about his experiences in the form of a kind of memoir but also exploring his relationship with music but he approached it with humor and dark humor and that really resonated with me because it was i've always felt a bit bad that i sometimes laugh about this stuff it's a coping mechanism that you know if someone makes a joke about paedophilia on have i got news for you i'm gonna laugh i'm Mm. not sensitive about it Mm. i can laugh about my own suicide i can't laugh about the sexual abuse yet but but i can definitely (laughs) laugh about suicide it's i mean you own it it means you own it as well i think yeah i mean i'm not gonna judge anyone for however they feel but to have someone who's been through such profound suffering and who can make light of the situation and, and have a bit of a poke at himself. I think it, that's humour is a really important thing for me. So that's quite a big coping mechanism. The other book that I read quite recently was um, Eve Ansler, My Apology. She wrote the vagina monologues, but she wrote... I know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But she wrote this book. She was abused by her father. And she wrote the book from the perspective of her father writing an apology note. Oh, wow. That he had never written. And oh, so it was all Jesus. the things that she okay. needed to hear to heal. And so that was a really powerful, wow, that's amazing. powerful exercise yeah. in exploring your own trauma and what you needed to heal. So amazing how she came up with that idea as well. I yeah. could never have the strength probably to do yeah. that. Yeah. So that those were two books that I've kind of read and thought if I was ever to write something, that that's really inspirational. And as a final question, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life? feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think that ideas around masculinity are changing, thankfully. I think the the key thing is to get over the idea that allowing yourself to be vulnerable is a weakness when it's actually a strength, in my opinion. I feel stronger as a man being able to express the emotions and the thoughts that I have that are difficult and creating a space where other men feel safe to do that you know you're doing that through this podcast i'm doing it just by having conversations with people and using my own example i think the more people that can do that and you touched on this earlier that there are more men speaking up but they weren't when i was younger so i think times are changing i think things are getting better but what more do we need to do i think we just need to continue what we're doing we need to and and work together more i think like collaborations like this are really important because we learn something about each other but we also learn something about ourselves in the process because I can relate to a lot of what you went through and you telling me your story at 27 reminds me of my journey at that age as well you know there's a lot of touch points that that, that are relatable so I think it's that relatability I think it's like I'm not alone there are other people out there going through the same things as me 
I'm not a freak. I'm not weird. And just, yeah, just just having that space where men can feel comfortable to let their guard down. And it, it's all a personal journey, as, as I've said. There's no right or wrong. I can't say because I've done something, it's the right way to go about it. And the other ways are wrong. People need to do what's best for themselves. But just knowing that there are other people out there that you can talk to and that will support you, I think is a really important thing. Tim Verity, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Freddie. Really enjoyed it. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Tim for being my special guest on this episode, for his incredible honesty in discussing his experience as a CSA victim survivor and breaking down so many taboos and stigmas about this. This pod helped me probably as much as it helped you venters. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Tim on social media in the show notes, find out more about his journey. He's got some really exciting projects coming up, which I'm sure he'll be dying to tell you about very soon. As always, I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us even more, you can go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or if you don't want to do that, you can visit our GoFundMe and make a one-off donation. That link is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to